So if you've got a Bible, can you turn to uh, Acts 15? And, um, and I've got a feeling that this morning may well be another one of those sermons where at the end of it, we just give it a little time to process it, to ask some questions, say, well, what are you thinking and all the rest of it. Um, so I'll try hard not to take too much time, but just enough to sort of set some of the, the scene with what's going on. So the 15th chapter of Acts. So let's just remind ourselves where we're up to in the story. You've had um, long chapters, really, about Peter and the way he has been uh, positioned by God, by God set him up, to really engage with the Gentiles. We've had the church in Antioch, who people, uh, because they were dispersed from Jerusalem because of the persecution there, they went to all sorts of places. And in Antioch, this church becomes almost this flagship church who goes, you know what, this good news is not just for people like us, it's not just for Jewish people, but it's actually for Gentile people as well. But of course, once you see that happen, then it raises a whole stack of questions. And it's the questions that, um, that begin to be addressed in this 15th chapter. So I'm going to read it. Anyway, here we go. Certain individuals came from Judea, so like, that's where Jerusalem is, center of it all, to Antioch, and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He didn't discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now, then, why do you try and test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it's written, after this, I'll return and rebuild David's fallen tent. His ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It's my judgment, therefore, that we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. 
For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, who were leaders among the believers. And with them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We've heard that some went out from us without our authorization, and they disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul. Men who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we're writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You're to abstain from food, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You'll do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So they sent off. They were sent off and they went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and they delivered the letter. The people were read, it, uh, read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who'd sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul didn't think it wise to take him because he deserted them in Pamphylia and hadn't continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Keep using this picture of uh, what's God's ambitious plan. God's ambitious plan in the book of Acts is always that love beyond borders, that idea that the gospel goes beyond people like us. But the more ambition the plan is, the more people take it on board, the more it involves change, and change always involves concern. It's hardly ever the situation that when change is introduced, it always goes smoothly. You know that. You know it from workplaces, you know it from your family, and you know it from yourself. That actually, whenever change happens, unless you're the one instigating change, it normally is destabilizing. We really enjoy change the most when we're in charge of it. We really struggle the most when it's done to us. But this ambitious plan of God was actually going to make a whole stack of change happen. And so concerns were raised. When you read the book of Acts, you read the early chapters, you know, the chapters when the Spirit came and they had everything in common and God was doing all sorts of amazing miracles and you think, oh God, it'd be great to be that sort of church. And then you read about churches like Antioch and you go, God, it'd be great to be that sort of church. Please, God, make us that sort of church. And you read the book, the chapter 15, and I think what Luke's doing in two things, really, I think he's actually demonstrating how do you disagree when actually the emotions are really high? And how do you sense what God's doing? I want to suggest that in this chapter as a whole, there were the two things that normally churches struggle with, the what and the how. The what is the big issue. 
What's the big issue here? And the first part of that long chapter was about the big issue. And the big issue, well, we'll come to that in a moment. But most churches, actually, that's one of the things they argue about. What's the big deal around here? And you see it, I see it in loads of places, both in denominations and in local churches, where churches are actually arguing about the big thing. What's the big thing? But actually, do you know what? We normally spend far more time arguing about the second one, which is the how. In other words, what's the strategy? How should we do this round here? The what, often, we sort of can take for granted because generally churches become sort of self-selecting groups. But the how, that's actually what we normally end up falling about, out about. And I think it's certainly in this case in this chapter. So... What's the what? So these folks from the uh, Jerusalem church had come to Antioch and had started teaching and they were teaching this central thing at the beginning of the 15th chapter. Unless you're circumcised, according to the law of Moses, you can't be saved. That was the what? And Paul and Barnabas weren't, couldn't, felt absolutely certain that they had to take this on because it was actually about what sort of gospel are we going to have. So if, if, if you were reading with me, and if you've still got your Bible open with me, look what happens by verse 11. So you got that in verse 1. That's the deal. Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. But by 11, verse 11, Peter's saying, no, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved, just as they are. That was the issue. What sort of gospel do we have? Do you, how many hoops do people have to jump to be able to receive the gospel? How much do they have to be like us to actually say, I'm in? And these people from Jerusalem had come down and they'd said, no, you've got to be circumcised. Why? Why would they say that? This is one of those moments where I just ask a question, give you a moment or two. Yeah, Jill. Fear of losing culture and identity. So remember, they're in Jerusalem. And uh, do you remember when we were looking at Mark's gospel and we talked about the idea of the temple, but the temple having the Romans overseeing the temple on the watchtower? How do you retain identity? Well, you hold to things like circumcisions, things that literally set you apart. Literally set you apart. Identity and culture. This is the way we do things. And if you want to join us, you have to, you have to embrace our culture. Why else might they have done it? Okay, a fear of letting go of the old and, a fear, and what might happen. It's like that. And I think that in, in that way, I think some of them would have been saying, this is the thin end, end of the wedge. You know that phrase? The thin end of the wedge. If, if we don't hold the line on this, then what will happen? Charlie? 
They're absolutely convinced based on the Bible, because of course, you just read the Old Testament. And of course, remember the obvious point, they didn't have the New Testament. <laughs> so when they said about the Bible, they were talking about the Old Testament. That's all they had. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. It's kind of like that was the deal. Why, any, any other thoughts? Yeah. They may not fully understand the radical nature of what Christ did on the cross. And indeed, may not have fully understood what God was doing amongst these Gentile people now. But can you see, although, I think that sometimes when we, when we read scripture, it's easy to sort of see these people as, oh, they're the bad guys. It's kind of like pantomime baddies, you know, and boo, and they come on the scene. But actually, the more you can actually see yourself in their shoes, the more you go, yeah, I kind of get it. I kind of get it. I can see why it became an issue. And what Peter's going is, no, this is an issue about the gospel. The second thing is, it was an issue about mission. So from verse 6 through to verse 12, when we read what Peter's been doing, Peter has been saying... You know that I've been sent to the Gentiles and we have seen all these people come to faith in Jesus. What do we do with them? So it's a question about mission. How do you do mission and who do you do mission with? So that was the big deal. And then the third thing was, is about the church. It's kind of interesting that when they get to some sort of um, conclusion here, now we'll talk about how they get to that, but what they do is they say, James, and uh, just remind you, James, the brother of Jesus, who kind of is seen as the, the head of the church, really. But James says, I think what we need to do is we need to write a letter to these believers in Antioch, and we need to tell them that they are accepted but we are going to ask them not to do four things. And the four things are, we are going to ask them or tell them to abstain from food polluted by idols. So in a context where you've got temples and offerings and everything else, they're going to say to the believers in Antioch and by extension the rest of the Gentile churches, can you just make sure that you don't get yourself involved in that? The second thing they're going to say is, don't get involved in sexual immorality. The third thing is, don't eat the meat of strangled animals. <laughs> and the fourth thing is, don't eat blood. Seems a little random, doesn't it? <laughs> they don't seem equally significant. It's kind of, don't sleep about and don't eat the meat of strangled animals. Okay, that's very important, yes. It's kind of like, what's going on here? And, and this blood bit. Now... <laughs> I know that some people would, you know, some Christians would take this very seriously still and they'd go past Berry Market and call down curses from heaven and go, you're wrong. I'm not there with that at all. I'm kind of wanting to ask the bigger question, why on earth these four things? Well, what we think is going on is perhaps the obvious thing. The two things that mark Jewish people out were if you're a male, being circumcised, and the food you ate. We're not going to ask you to get circumcised. Hooray! <laughs> but in a mixed congregation with Jew and Gentile, we're going to actually ask you to give some stuff up. 
Now you will say, as Gentiles, you will say, the food doesn't matter. You will remember Jesus saying, it's not what goes in that's the problem, it's what comes out. You're going to say, do you remember by this Jesus called all foods clean? And we're going to go, yeah, we remember. But in a mixed congregation with Jew and Gentile, we are going to ask you, can you live together as a church that actually if some people have strong opinions about food, those of you that don't have opinions about food will give it up. What sort of church will you have? Because some people just go around saying, no, we can eat anything. And they're going, no, not if you love one another. So for Peter, what he's, for the church, what they're doing is they're sort of saying, actually, the big issue is what sort of gospel have we got? What sort of mission are we on? And what sort of church are we going to engage with? Because the church will be made up of people with different experiences, different stories, different fears, different understanding, and different decisions. How did they come to that? I think this is, I mean, this is the obvious interesting bit, isn't it? The two things they had were their stories and scripture. That's how they came to these decisions. They listened to one another and they listened to the stories. Whether you're reading Christian writers or whether you're reading um, books published by the, in the business world about negotiation and about mediation, they all will say the same thing. If you want to make peace, you have to listen to the stories about what's happened. And you've got to listen to those stories well enough, even when you don't think what the story is, is the true story. How many of us have been in a, a, a ruck with someone, and they said, you said, or you did, and you come back really quick. I didn't. And then it just becomes a ruck about memory. So it's not actually always easy, and you know that in families, it's not always easy just to work out exactly what did happen. It's far more interesting to know what was the significance of what happened. Tell me why it mattered. Tell me what you saw. Tell me what your story is. Rarely is the issue the issue. It's normally another issue. Tell me your story. Why did it make you feel like that? Why did you react like that? What have you seen? Where have you been before? Let's hear the story. And as, uh, as you said, as Jill said, for the Judaizers, the story was about identity, about purity, about renewal. But the story was actually God's doing something more here. Please listen to my story about what I can see. When we listen to one another, then actually we don't just hear, but we value. But of course it takes time. And it's really easy to judge on the basis of intention that you don't know. You can't judge intention. Though we're really good at it, aren't we? How many of us do that thing of, 
They did this. I bet I know. It happened to me. I did it on Friday. Uh, it was a small thing. I'm not going to tell you what it was, but um, it was a small thing. And uh, some, I'd spoken to someone about something, and they were really, they just put me off a bit. And in between speaking to the next person I need to speak about to find out what was really going to go on, I had built a story. I bet I know why they put me off. It went in my head. And not only that, I then supplied the five reasons why they'd put me off. And I have to tell you, none of them were flattering. I built a story, I, judged inten- I, I could see intention, I judged the intention, and boy, were they in the wrong. So it was a bit disappointing when just 15 minutes later I find that I was wrong. That is always disappointing, isn't it? It's so easy to do. And I keep on having to remind myself, I can't judge other people's intention with 2020 vision. But I can take the time to listen to the story. And then secondly, they read scripture together. And they tried to work out what does scripture say and how does scripture help us here. And um, not just a proof text, but actually how does scripture unfold. In other words, what they were wanting to do is go beyond what does it feel, what, do we, what feels right. They're actually going, actually, we want to make some good decisions here. If you've been aware at all, about what's been going on in the wider church, and you will have done, you will know that one of the big things that the church is talking together about at the moment is the whole same-sex transgender question. What do we do when we're in a new situation? And the church as a whole having massive discussions about this. Because we have to. We have to. We are living in a different world now. When people are married, that we, maybe some of us go, I'm not sure. But that's right. But they're married. And if they come to faith, how will we make sense of that? So these stories will continually need to be asked and tell me your story. Tell me. Because it's easy to go, no. We know, what this, we know what's right. And we may know what's right. But actually, it's always about people. And the church, at the moment, in the bigger sense, are having these conversations in this way to try and work out what to do. And it may be that actually churches will end up with, an, I think what will happen is churches will end up with a number of different responses. In truth, I think that's what will happen. Like we do on loads of stuff, actually. Like we do on baptism, like we do on women in ministry, like we do on gifts of the Spirit, like we do on loads of stuff. Actually, I think we'll have a range of responses to that. But it's how do we see the people who have a different response to us? Can I hear your story? Can I read Scripture with you? And can we see how Scripture unfolds? That was the what, and then very quickly, the how. The irony is, Paul and Barnabas go to try and get this sorted, and then <laughs> they have a massive bust up. I mean, the language is it's got like sort of massaged in English. Um, 
because uh, in verse 39, it says in English, they had such a sharp disagreement. The word comes, the word that sort of lies at the heart of that is paroxysm. It's like this explosion. What did they explode about? Well, Barnabas, whose cousin was called John Mark. Barnabas said, I know John Mark let us down last time. I know he went home halfway through the journey. I know it cost us money. I know it was a problem, but I think we should take him again. And Paul goes, over my dead body. I'm, I, this is from the message version. Over my, over my dead body. We're not taking him, because he'll let us down again. It must have been half a Barnabas, mustn't it? I don't know, but I'd love to know. Did Barnabas ever say to him, Paul, do you remember when nobody trusted you? And I stuck my neck out for you. And I brought you to the apostles. And I was the encourager. And I stood up for you. And I protected you. I don't know whether Barnabas would have said that, but I would have said that if I'd been Barnabas. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe Paul is going, do you know what? The mission is more important than the person. You can't just have unreliable people. In Galatians, I'm not going to read it, but in Galatians chapter 2, you can do this later if you want. There's another retelling of what's happening in chapter 15. And what Paul does when he writes to the Galatians, and he was right around the same time, he said, uh, Peter said all this, he said, but there, there was another time when Peter went back on it and I had to stand up to him. And Peter was so, because Peter decided he wasn't going to weep with Gentiles again. And I stood up to him and I told him he was wrong. And he says, and he persuaded many people. Even Barnabas followed him. And you wonder whether actually by now their relationship is so fragile that they're arguing about John Mark, but it's about something else. Paul is saying, John Mark's not reliable. Paul is saying, we can't take him again. And Paul and Barnabas have a massive row and they split. And we never hear of Barnabas again in the New Testament. Now he went on and continued to do mission. But I wonder who you think was right. Or a better question. Where would you have stood? Let's just see. How many of you are the Barnabas people? There's no right answer here, by the way. The Barnabas people? Give him another chance, people. Yeah, give another chance, people. Oh, yeah, now you've got it. Yeah, a bit more. Who are with Paul going, no, the mission's more important than unreliable people? Yeah, two of you, three of you, four of you. Five, definite, yep, okay, six, yeah. The mission goes on, but it didn't have to be like that. The mission went on, Barnabas and and, um, John Mark go on, Paul and Silas go on, but the split didn't have to happen like that. Last thing, 
It's kind of interesting that by the end of Paul's life, John Mark creeps into Paul's writings. In Colossians, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. In brackets, you've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's kind of like, hang on, Paul. So you want him to be received. And also the question comes, so what's Mark doing in and around prison now? But he's there. In Philemon, um, Paul writes, it's a similar time when he's writing Colossians, so it'd be not surprising. And he's just giving greetings. So do Mark send their greetings. Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And then finally, in chapter, two, in chapter four of Timothy, only Luke's with me, Timothy, uh, Paul writes to Timothy. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. This may well have been Paul's last letter. It's kind of nice. Or at least there might have been some sort of resolution. How do we deal with conflict? The first thing to say is, a good church has conflict. If you don't have any conflict, either some people are just laying down and dying and doing nothing, or nobody's thinking deeply enough about anything. It's like, you know, for those of you that are married or have been married in the past, you know when you get some couples that go, we've never argued in our life. And then you look at the other person. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's like we tried but I just couldn't so I decided not to <laughs> I don't think healthy relationships are one where there's not conflict actually I think, it's, I think it's really likely that churches that grow that churches that are involved in mission that churches are trying to think through the future they need to disagree with one another that's the first thing it's never pleasant and most of us prefer it when we're all getting on really well. And all of us really... I mean, to be honest, if you don't, if you don't struggle when you're in conflict, then I worry about you, to be honest. You know those people who go, no, I love it. No. <laughs> but how do we resolve it, is the question. You will know from personal relationships, when people say... I was once, I worked with someone who did this, and they said to us, they were in a position of responsibility, and they brought us all into their office, and they said, he said, I've got a number of things that I'm really upset about, and I'm really concerned about, and I'm going to tell you all of them, and then I want none of you to say anything. So he did. For some of us, that was really, that was a difficult moment. What sort of... That's not resolving anything. That's just dumping. We can't resolve. You can't resolve if you don't talk. You can't resolve if you don't know. You can't resolve if you're not prepared to listen and listen to the stories at length. You can't resolve if you're not prepared to sit down and go, explain, not just what happened, but how it left you, why it matters, what's gone on. And sometimes I think we're really rubbish at that. 
Because, of course, once you do that, you're vulnerable. When it's stuff that really matters, that's central to our faith, then Scripture really does matter, actually. You can't have a conflict in church, I don't think, except about the stuff that's really central without you getting the Bibles out and going, let's actually look at this, let's read this together, let's actually make sense of this together, because otherwise, where's our authority? In the end, it'll be just what feels right for me or whoever's got the loudest voice. In the end, you've got to come back and go, let's look at Scripture together. But you know what I think? I think most of us fall out most of the time about the how. And most of the big fallouts in church probably didn't need to happen. I was chatting to one guy who, uh, in a church in another part of the world, and uh, he and his associate just couldn't work together. They just got to the end. And to be fair to the guy that I, I know, he, he really tried hard to make the split happen well, but the other guy wasn't having it. And he was talking about going to court. Sometimes you have to split. Sometimes it's right to move. Sometimes you have to set one another. Do you know what? We're not doing any, any good to one another here. We have, to, we have to either work apart or we have to worship apart. Sometimes actually it's okay to leave a church. Sometimes it's right because it's just not healthy anymore. But the how is so important, which is where I'd like to finish by looping back to Louisa's story. They don't happen easily. And it doesn't happen quick. But if you carry just the ongoing hurt into the future, that means that you can't actually make peace with the past. You hinder your own future. And most of us have got relationships with other Christians that in the past has actually hobbled us at some level or other. And lots of us will have sorted those out. Lots of us will have done that. But for some of us, it's almost inevitable that there will be those little barbs, those little jibes, that when we begin to think about it, they just come back and they bite us again. And it's why stories like Louisa's become really interesting and helpful. I spoke a little longer than I was expecting to. Maybe you were. I, no, he'll take time. But before we pray, what's going through your heads? What's helpful and what's worthy of more thought? Yeah, Andrew.
Yeah. 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 And, and, and that sort of sense of don't give up too easily. I, I, there's a really fine balance here because I know that for some of you, you didn't. I mean, I know you've come to our church from, another, from other churches and you didn't give up easily. And so I, I, I want to be really careful here. There are, and I think there are times when actually it is right to leave. But it's the times to leave are when you've really tried hard to make it work. <laughs> um, not when you've been offended. Yeah, Julian. Yeah. 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 And I think, I, think, I think it's a fair insight. I think that the, the idea of, of Paul developing as a man as well. You know, sometimes it's difficult. It's like you can't criticize Jesus. That's fine. But some people say you can't criticize Paul either because it's like, oh, <laughs> you know. And, and I think actually what you see is Paul's development. And I think you're right. I think that idea by the time he's writing Philippians, there's, there's more going on here. I felt a bit sorry for those two women though, don't you? It's like you go home. Good news, we're in the Bible. <laughs> How did you get in? We're out. Um, Jill. Thank you. Driven by fear or driven by love. Yeah, Corinne.
hope you take this the right way. Um, I've got a feeling that one of the one of the things about and um, as you get older and as you, I think, okay, let me make it really personal. I want to get to the end of my life. I want to walk into heaven, having tried to tie up as many loose ends as possible. <laughs> That's what I'm going to try and do. So that means I'm going to try and keep short accounts so I don't have a lot to do when I'm old. Because <laughs> when you get older, you, you sort of, you've got quite the same energy levels. So keep short accounts with people. And, um, and I think as much as possible, be reconciled with the people you need to be reconciled with. You know, I, I don't want to embarrass her any more than I have already done. But when Louise talks about this idea with her friend, we probably will never be in the same relationship again. I think that's probably exactly what happens. We can't go back to the same relationships. But actually, we can look at each other. We can pass one another. We can think about one another with gratitude rather than just with disappointment. And I think as we walk towards the Lord and as we walk towards heaven, as we walk towards life eternal, as we walk through this life, actually, I want to make, I want, I want to keep those accounts of the past sorted. And then, I want to make sure that in the present, as far as I can, we try and keep reconciliation going. In, do you know what I mean? So, we do, so when we do have conflict, because you can't go through life without conflict, but you go through conflict, you handle it as well as you can, because actually what you're praying for is wisdom. So you handle it better now. It's, it's Julian's point. Paul, you handle it better when you're dealing with the Philippians later than you did when you were in uh, this situation in chapter 15, 25 years earlier. I think there's that sort of sense of trying to make sense of the past, but also trying to hard in the present say, I'm learning how to do this, and I need the wisdom that gives me the ability to do that. I don't know if that's relevant for you, but, or maybe it's just me. It could well be. We're going to pray together. I'm going to ask uh, Hannah and the folks to come back.